Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Tom Marvin, technical editor here at Bike Radar. And joining me today over the magic of Microsoft Teams, we've got our senior technical editor in chief, Rob Weaver. How's it going, Rob? All good, thanks, Tom. How are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, not too bad. Uh, we've also got our technical editor, or another technical editor, Alex Evans, uh, all the way from Scotland. How are you doing, Al? Yeah, very good, Tom. Looking outside the window, and it is a beautiful day here. I'm a, I'm a jealous man. I'm looking out of a uh, Velux window that's got a blind over it because I haven't opened them. Um, and then <laughs> all the way from Wootton on the Edge, uh, we've got tech writer Where? Luke Marshall, who's Wootton Under Edge. Isn't that where you live? I thought you said Wootton on the Edge. I think Wootton on, on the, the edge. edge as well. I mean, I'm sure they are ready. <laughs> is it on the Edge or is it under the Edge? I don't know. <laughs> We're definitely under the Edge, yeah. From Wootton Under Edge, uh, Luke Marshall is a technical writer at Bike Radar, and you've just joined the Hub tech team um, from MBUK. How's it all going, Luke? Yeah, it's going well. Yeah, first couple of weeks in the new role and uh, and enjoying it. Excellent. In at the deep end with a downhill bikes test, is that right? Yep, straight into the deep end, just, uh, yeah, plowing on through a downhill bikes uh, group test. So, Excellent. Yeah, not Any, anything interesting and fun in it? or Always a lot of fun, you know. You're just going out to, uh, out to the downhill trails and, and thrash them down there as fast as you can. So definitely a lot of fun. Interestingly, they're all really good. So yeah, that's quite tough. <laughs> good stuff. That's, that's handy. <laughs> Are you throwing it back to the uh, 1990s and pushing uphill wearing baggy jeans and fans, waffle sole shoes? I'm not. I've got my tightest like race fit pants on these days to fit in with the crowd. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and uplifts only because, you know, I'm too posh to push these days. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, on, on the sort of almost exact opposite of Luke's test, Rob, I know you're um, very deep into a down country bike test for MBUK. Is that right? How's it all going? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's quite a fun bike test to do, really. You know, um, admittedly, I've been sort of um, going to start watch out and trying to do a little bit of working out which is the most efficient bike in certain like, certain sort of trail types, trail centres, and then natural stuff and bits and pieces. I think the hardest thing to sort of nail down is, you know, what do you actually want from a downcountry bike? Mm. What are your expectations and it's been really cool to see how the different brands have approached it. You know, some from a more, I guess, cross-country background where the bike clearly is set in that cross-country DNA, so more efficient mm-hmm. and fast, whereas other brands have taken their trail bike and maybe pared it down a little bit, reduced the travel, but still bolt some pretty, you know, burly, hefty components to it. So, yeah, really interesting mix of bikes and um, some really interesting results at the minute. Wicked, and that's going to be on sale in 
pretty much about four weeks' time because I think the uh, issue 396 of MBK's just landed in the shops or just about to. So we're four weeks away from that test. Isn't that right? 396? No. Um, we haven't oh. actually hit a deadline yet. So we, we go to print no. next week. That's handy to know. Yeah, next Friday. <laughs> that goes to print. Good. Yeah, so then another two weeks after that, roughly. Okay. So we're about six weeks away from, from that test being on sale. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And what about you, Al? Are you doing anything fun? Uh, well, I'm actually sitting in the middle of uh, Luke and Rob with, with trail bikes. Um, mm. So I'm doing a trail bikes test with a budget of around £2,000. Um, okay. Probably a little bit more. Um, at the moment, I've got two bikes. I'm not going to give away any clues right now to who they are because it's really exciting and you'll have to buy the magazine to find out. But the remaining two bikes of the test, uh, some big question marks there. We touched on last time uh, in one of mm. our last podcasts was bike availability. So fingers crossed we'll be able to uh, to, full out a, uh, to fill up a full test. But yeah, trail bikes. Woo. Excellent. <laughs> fingers crossed. What about you, Tom? Well, Holy what bowling. am I doing? Yeah, we forgot you. Uh, oh, it's all right. No, no, no. What am I doing? Well, fortunately, well, not fortunately, I'm not doing any bike tests at the moment. I've got a hardcore hardtail test later on in the summer, but um, I'm working pretty hard on a wheels group test and a brakes group test for MBUK. So I am rattling my Marin Elroy up and down plenty of hills, swapping tires on an almost daily basis, which is you love that. one of my dream jobs. So I love mm. doing that. Um, bleeding brakes. Ah. Uh, dreamy dreamy times in my workshop um so yeah so doing all of that which is both interesting and lots of fun so how many how many spoons have you had to steal from the kitchen drawer to uh use the temporary <laughs> tire levers many many spoons i've now got a lot of bent spoons <laughs> I, I thought you were referring to uh, illicit drug use just to try and calm your tempers a bit <laughs> either way that and the odd occasional musical interlude, playing the spoons on my knee. But, uh, <laughs> spoons, who'd have thought? Maybe we should review one. We should. I'll do a spork. Versatile. Oh. Everything. Oh, it's dangerous though, it's a bit sharp at the end. Like... And that flings off. <laughs> right, I think um, before we confuse everyone, <laughs> um, we thought uh, a few weeks ago, uh, myself and Warren did a podcast on the most influential road bikes. Um, since the turn of the millennium. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting. Uh, I don't know about any of the listeners, but I thought it was all right. Um, <laughs> so we thought we'd do um, a mountain bike version. Um, so we're going to look today at sort of some of the most influential mountain bikes from the past 20, 21, 22 years, that sort of thing. Um, seeing sort of the, you know, about the development, what the models are, what they were, why they were influential, why they were potentially interesting, and what they've meant for bikes that are around today. Um, we're quite lucky that the... If you exclude myself from this, uh, Luke, Rob and Al are all very accomplished uh, bike racers. I've done a lot of downhill in their time, but also incredibly um, ridden a lot of bikes over many, many years. So there's a wealth of knowledge there. Uh, I just tag along uh, and use as much of the internet as possible to research um, because I don't really know jack shit, really. Uh, There we go. You're making um, it sound like we really do know what we're talking about. I mean, you, you got to. <laughs> everyone, please keep listening and try not to be too disappointed. But what Tom's done is he's set the bar really low by saying that he knows nothing, and in comparison, we know everything. So compared to someone who knows nothing, actually, we probably don't know. Oh, that much. okay. See, I clearly Clever. know nothing. See. <laughs> I don't know, Rob. You, you undersell yourself on a daily basis, Rob. <laughs> I think. 
Um, now, we, we, we did set up a, um, an order of bikes that we wanted to talk about, um, and I have forgotten the order, but I think, Rob, we're going to start with you, aren't we? Yes, so... Excellent, I got that bit right. So, obviously this is, is you know, it's quite personal, I think, for all of us, to a degree, mm. but the bike I wanted to kick off with is the Mondraker Summum. So, okay. we first saw that bike winning in Maribor, thanks to Fabian Burrell, who was um, partly responsible for the de development of it, and it was designed by Cesar Rojo. So the reason I picked this is, yes, that bike is very significant in a lot of ways because, for example, it had um, lots of geometry adjustment. So it had uh, three positions that you could run, or three different um, headset cups you could run, different mm -hmm. fork angles. So I think that ranged from around about, I want to say like 61 degrees all the way through to about 64, 65, I think. I think when Fabian won Maribor, it was 61 and a half. But I'm pretty sure he had some special ones made so he could take it all the way down to 59 degrees, which is pretty wow. crazy. What, what year was this in, sorry, 2009, Rob? that bike. 2009, yeah, so this I, is a downhill bike. Yeah, so it didn't go into production, I don't think, until 2010. So that was the first. So the first one he won was essentially a prototype. Um, it also had. Uh, it was the first time we saw the zero suspension system, which is a twin links or virtual pivot style thing, which Caesar designed. Um, and it's the same platform that's been carried on by Monreca through to today. On all the that's even on their little downcountry bikes as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So so that was another. Th really significant thing and there was stuff like uh four position um change the adjustment so i think it went from 435 up to about 450 i think mm -hmm. um and then obviously that bike had gone on not so it didn't just win under fabian and do really well for years with him but obviously brooke mcdonald's won on it um danny hart's won on it laurie greenland won on it um, so it's obviously a well-proven bike, mm. but it was that bike that essentially then led to the development, or it was partly responsible for that development of forward geometry. So again, another sort of a, a brainchild of Cesar Rojo, and again, Fabian as well. Um, and forward geometry was one of those, I, I guess, a sort of a milestone in, in bike technology, bike design almost, that it definitely had people talking. I remember being at places like uh, the specialised press camps and stuff like that, where those guys, the engineers there, would ask us about it because we'd ridden the bikes and maybe they hadn't. I think I, I think I rode the prototype. So I'm trying to think what... So they debuted it on the Foxy, and I rode that bike in 2011 when I was out there just visiting the guys and with Fabian. And it used a 10mm stem. They called it the centre stem. So it's quite a tall front end. Um, and what they did was, so the original Foxy used, a, I think it was a 70 mil stem. So by using a 10 mil stem, they then added the additional stem length to the front triangle of the bike. So increase the front center to boost high speed stability and stuff like that and improve, you know, steering reactivity and, and things like that. So when they first launched it in 2013, um, Monraker sold... I think it was the Foxy XR, but you could still buy the other Foxy models 
with a normal stem, regular geometry, because they weren't too sure. They just wanted to test the water and see how it went. But I think gradually as time went on, people started to embrace that longer, you know, more improved high-speed stability geometry where, you know, you'd ride a steep trail and it didn't feel like you were about to fly at the front door every time you grabbed the front brake or went off a drop or, you know, wherever it was. Um, and slowly that sort of filtered into the rest of the range. So if you look at the rest of, or if you look at pretty much all of um, Monraker's bikes now, they all employ forward geometry. Mm. I don't think it's quite as drastic as it was. Um, and they certainly don't use a 10 mil stem anymore. I think it's all based, or the majority are based around a 30 mil stem. But it was one of those, it, I think it was one of those turning points that sort of paved the way for the last decade almost. Or well, not quite a decade, but you know what I mean. Um, near enough. A millennium, seeing as that's what we're talking about. Ooh, there you go. Um, but it was that bike, I think, that then managed to capture the imagination of Chris Porter. And Chris was Chris was really, really into that Foxy and, and the whole forward geometry concept. You know, he was riding a Foxy XR in size extra large with, you know, um, God knows how much reach it must have had. And I think he still couldn't quite get the numbers he wanted in terms of chainstay, in terms of BB height and stuff like that. And I think he'd approached a couple of different brands and eventually it was Nikolai that said, oh, yeah, we can we can build a bike to those numbers. And that's how um, Geometron was born. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, obviously, I've, you know, um, dumped it down quite a bit and made it sound way <laughs> simpler than it was. But, that, yeah, you know, Chris was always on the, on the old Foxy and, and was a big fan of it. But it was, it was that, I think, that then helped to spawn what became Geometron bikes. And, obviously, I think most listeners will probably be aware of... Um, the path that's taken Chris and 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 I would say also the, the praise it's earned him over the years from all sorts of, you know, everyone from us lot and other media places to um, anyone that's basically tried on their bikes. And and their sort of take on the long, low slack in its extreme, you know, um, and how that benefits, you know, Chris is all about how that benefits every rider, not just the experience, but the less experienced as well. So, yeah, bit of a long story, but ultimately, yeah, I think the reason I put the sum in there because it felt like it was that sort of, it was one of those stepping stones almost that all like the, the first domino in the row that began that chain reaction to where we are now with some of those more extreme bikes. And I think bikes like the Foxy XR and the Geometron G16 and the G1 and Bikes like that now are the ones that are influencing even some of the bigger brands. They're the ones where you do still get the engineers asking, "Oh, have you ridden one of those? Have you, have you, you know, what do you think of it?" And then you know we're seeing we're seeing stuff like Pole and their bike, you know, that Seb um, was a big fan of, which you know has you know massive reach numbers, really long chainstays, low slack, all of the above, and similarly with Specialized. And their Stumpy Evo, when that first came out, I think a lot of people were quite shocked that such a mainstream brand had designed and built a bike with such extreme angles. I mean, you had one for a year, didn't you, Tom? Yeah, I had the an S3, so like the longest 29er they did, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm six foot and it, it, you know, 
for what it was very good at, it was incredibly good at it. Yeah. Um, do you think it's fair to say that the the summum and, and, and forward geometry and stuff, you know, it's not just you know, it's not just the likes of Geometron and Pole and, and you know, special with the Sumpy Evo, but it feels like they've they've influenced influenced an awful lot of bikes from many brands now. And maybe brands aren't going quite as extreme as you know that those brands have, but everyone has gone longer, everyone has gone slacker. You know, and, you know, trail bikes are four eighty in reach, enduro bikes are sixty four in head angle, that sort of thing. Yeah, I reckon so. I think so. And I think as the if you look at the summer from back in two thousand and nine, you know, okay, wheel sizes have changed somewhat, so some some of those measurements are kind of out due to that. But certain things like head angle, you know, they're still is still just as relevant now. That hasn't mm. changed a whole lot since that bike kind of crept in i i had a production summer in 2011 and i think that had i had it set up with a i think it was like a 63 and a half degree head angle and that's pretty much what mm. you look at most of the top guys that's what they're using now so it just goes to show sort of how far ahead potentially caesar was when he designed that bike and, and obviously he was working with fabian who was renowned for being pretty extreme with his preferences and how hard he would push um, the design guys, the suspension guys and stuff like that. But I think, yeah, it just goes to show just, um, just, yeah, how, 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 um, how relevant and how relevant that bike still is today. Mm-hmm. Can you remember your first riding impressions of it? Like, comparing it to the downhill bikes you were used to at the time with that forward geometry and, and how it made the bike feel. Well, so technically the Summon didn't have forward geometry. The Summon just had, at the time, relatively, I wouldn't say radical, it was just a bit more stretched out and slack than the other bikes. Um, yeah, I mean, do you know what? The biggest thing with that bike was, even though it had all that going on, a relatively slack head angle, um, it was slightly longer, and you had all that geometry, it was still a really easy bike to ride. Maybe because of that. Also because the zero suspension platform was really supportive. And I know when we were talking about what bikes we were going to pick, Al, you had a few sort of um, few notes on the summer because you had one in, is it 2012? Yeah, I had one in 2012 it was. Um, but also interestingly, I actually met Caesar in 2009, Caesar Rojo, yeah. um, in Portugal racing. And he was on one of the test mules of the the, the summum, like the the pre summum. Yeah. And um, I, I was on an Empire AP1 at the time, so he he wanted to chat to me about my bike and kind of looking at his bike. I was like, flipping heck, I've never seen one of those before. It, it was, you know, it looked um, not significantly slacker and lower, but you could definitely tell that there was a difference between that bike and all the current downhill bikes at the time. It was quite different to the Kaiser, wasn't it? The one that they had before yeah, right? massively yeah yeah and that was that was what a horse link style pivot or was it even just a single pivot faux bar thing i can't quite remember but... i think it was a four bar because okay I, yeah i think that's why they couldn't sell outside of europe okay so yeah caesar was caesar was in portugal racing on this on this summon prototype and uh, it was like a bright gold color to sort of you know hide it a bit i don't know make it look whatever fancy not hide it i don't know any one of those combination of things pick one um <laughs> and uh it, you know caesar was like dead up for chatting really nice bloke but it did strike me how kind of different the bike looked and mm. you know it, it certainly 
sowed a seed, didn't it? And then in 2012, I ended up racing on one. Um, and, you know, I had set the geometry, mega slack, wheelbase, mega long. I think I started with the chainstays in the shortest position, but ended up putting them in the longest position after trying them all out and figured, oh, hang on, this is really, really good. And kind of ignoring what the numbers were sort of suggesting um, it should ride like, you know, lazy, too slack, slow around corners. Um, it wasn't any of those things. And it was really, really light. I remember it being one of the lightest downhill bikes at the time, mm. full stop. Um, but it didn't have its faults. Um, and I guess we can probably talk about this now because it was so so long in the past. Um, but I've definitely, definitely cracked a couple of the, the head tubes on a couple of the summons. And also the arch um, across the the seat stays used to bottom out onto the seat tube and dent the seat tube. <laughs> um, which Just a probably, minor detail. Though. Yeah, yeah, minor detail. I mean, that was probably maybe something to do with me more than anything else. I was kind of riding every day of the week in the Alps at that point. But yeah, what an incredible bike, hey? Oh yeah, yeah, it's wicked. And, and like I say, it was that sort of, it, it was the first bike that I guess it really made Caesar a name outside of his race career. Because obviously, you know, those that don't know, he was an established World Cup racer with some great results behind him. He'd ridden some for some big teams. Yeah. And absolutely. yeah, it felt like this is the first one that really sort of um it really sort of shone a light on his designing abilities. And then obviously that went on to it sort of snowboard from there. And he's well, he's obviously he's he runs Uno bikes now. Um but yeah, everything in the middle there. It felt like it's it's been one of there's a number of things there that have significantly gone on to not necessarily shake the world of bike design, but definitely influence. I think. All right. Well, let's. Um, should we crack on to the next one then? I think Luke, you were going to talk about uh, specialized. Yeah. So I'm going to bring up the uh, specialized SX trail. Mm. So I guess you could say it's one of the. Uh, one of the first kind of long travel pedal day bikes, really. Um, so as part of specialized Enduro range, and that kind of launched kind of way back in 2000, really, like 1999, 2000. Um, and it kind of went through a few iterations on the way to kind of where it landed at the SX trail. Um, but then this one, this kind of, yeah, the model year 2005, 2006, it was the first time that Specialized took it really long travel, burly bike, earn your turns as such. And uh, and I guess that's kind of, say, paved the way for lots of bikes to kind of head that way and introduced kind of the enduro discipline as such, really. Mm-hmm. Um so the, I say the regular Enduro model came with, say, 150 mil of travel, um, front and rear. And then the, the SX model, they, they upped that even more. So they had a big, um, oh, I can't think of the shock on it now, um, fifth element coil shock, um, 225 mil, like uh, eye-to-eye length and like pumped up to like 168 mil of travel. Um, 164 on there so it was kind of say one of the first real like downhill capable bikes um that could still kind of intended to pedal around if you know what i mean because it would have had like at least a double chainsaw on there right 
So it had both, yeah, front um, front mech mounts and um, tabs for chain guide. Yeah. So the SX model came single speed uh, or one by, um, but then the Endura model came with yeah two chain rings. So that they they coexisted at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, but um, as I was say, that whole like Enduro line was kind of one of the first bikes I remember hearing about, um, like single travel downhill capable bikes. And you might have been with me at the time, Robin. It was probably I think it was a race. Uh, dragging down her one at Minith D, 2005, 2006, possibly, I can't remember the year, when um, Steve Jones, now of uh, EMTB, but then of like dirt fame. Yeah, he was had, racing uh, one, wasn't he? Yeah, was racing uh, an Enduro and was raving about, you know, how this single crown bike was just as capable down one of those roughest like UK downhill tracks. Yeah, had a 36 on the front, I think. Fox 36 yeah. fork. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And, uh, and and that's kind of yeah, the first time I remember hearing about these like super capable long travel single crown bikes that, you know, why would you need a downhill bike anymore? You can take this one and go and pedal it back up the hill afterwards, if you know what I mean. Um, and I think, yeah, that bikes like that, say, paved the way for for these burlier bikes that you could, you know, use all day. I guess they kind of um, inspired, say, the, the Santa Cruz Nomad came out at a similar time. I think that was 2000. 2005 to 2008 that was like 165 travel bike with the kind of mark one nomad um trek remedy launched in 2006 as well that again was six inch travel 152 mil um but then kind of the the recognizable model you might see of that was probably launched in 2008 that had the evo link and the trex abp pivot and was like the full floater system so that was again a couple of years later didn't um, didn't Giant have the Rain X as well at some point that had the punctured bounce sheet like the Glory, um, which was like a long travel coil shot version of the Rain as well? I seem to remember. So that would have been like similar era. Oh six, oh seven. Yeah. Okay. So the, the Glory 07. was launched oh six, wasn't it? So it's probably after that, maybe. I think or, it was oh seven. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, like uh, maybe one of your favorite was it GT Sanction? One of your favorite bikes, Al? Yeah, best bike on the planet. Yeah, yeah. That was that's like uh, again a 2008 model bike that's kind of all been inspired really by these kind of longer travel, hard hitting single crown bikes. And I think kind of the Specialized Trail SX probably you know launched a lot of those bikes and um, yeah made them kind of capable. So it, it, whilst you were just talking about that Dragon Downhill race, um, which for our international viewers was the Welsh National Series of Downhill Racing at Minith D, which is uh, one of the rounds there, I, I pulled up Roots and Rains uh, results for that event in uh, 2005. And uh, Steve Jones came second in the uh, 30 <laughs> to 39 men category, just behind Stephen, uh, Tim Ponting, just behind Ponting. Um, and I presume, you know, he was riding the riding the SX trail and Ponting would have would have been on he was on Mojo suspension at that time, so it would have probably been a Typha. He might have been on an orange he might he was on orange quite a while, yeah. Um so anyway, yeah, so it kind of you know proves your point that um that bike was really quite quite surprisingly capable for its time. But I, I don't I don't know how my, how many they sold. I mean I never remember seeing a a massive number of them. The no, trails. I don't know how it was because, like, the years after that, 2007, 2009, I think, then Specialized didn't have the SX trail again. They went back to normal Enduro, but they it was the one where they specced with their own forks and their own shock and their own wheels. They went completely in-house 
And uh, they had I think that, that dual was... crime fork, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it's a dual yeah. crime specialized fork. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did you not like the look out. of it, Al? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so I think yeah. So specialized. Uh, reading up a little bit about the SX Trail, they said they think that bike was just a bit ahead of its time and um, people weren't quite ready for it. So um, they did drop down, like drop back down just 150 mil travel bike for the next few years. Um, but that one, of course, with its in-house suspension, apparently had its own problems. So, uh, And then when they launched it again in 2010, that's probably the model that most people will remember, like the carbon frame X-wing design. Um that's kind of been along, around a long time until kind of the most modern transformation of it with its... Uh... Yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah. 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 So, but uh, yeah, and to me, I think that's kind of one of the bikes that yeah, launched a whole whole new discipline of, yeah, bikes really. And Because uh... previously you'd, you'd go ride downhill, cross-country, dirt jumps or trials. There was no like all-mountain trail um, enduro, whatever it was like. If you're not riding your downhill bike, you're riding cross country. Well, you put you just put your saddle up on your dirt jump bike, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and grind around with single speed with one one brake. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, no, it it did. It sort of it spurred on a. It gave it gave inspiration to a whole new group of riders. Well, to... there was the giant chance around that time as well. I think that came, the oh, first one was in 2004. Yes, and I know you you obviously had a very yeah. soft spot for that one, Al. Yeah. Yeah, oh, trancy. Yeah. Do you yeah. want to give us a quick little story about your trance, Al? Because oh, I just, you, you, I just, I just, I just, it make me sad thinking about it. I did like my two thousand and five or four, whichever year it was. Giant trance. Me and Tom have actually spoken about at length. We about did this giant trance in a previous Bike Radar podcast. So please listen to that one if you don't want to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, let's move on to you. All right. Well, um, I pull up my notes. Oh, got a full sheet of notes. They, so, um, they need to use that clip for the Instagram teaser, don't they? <laughs> yeah. It's got his notepad. Oh, it's just squiggles. Um, it's not biting. <laughs> so like, I, guess, I guess unlike you guys, my, my sort of background in mountain biking is, is probably more of the sort of the cross-country and trail side rather than, you know, downhill and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I guess the, the Kotick Soul uh, is, is the bike that sort of I figured – really needs to sort of be highlighted in a, in a list of really influential bikes. I mean, it's it's the first bike um, from one of, I guess, the UK's most iconic modern mountain bike brands. Um, it came out in 2003. Well, it was sort of prototyped in 2002, 2003, um, and was really a response um, from Sai, who's the guy behind the brand, because so like like you just said, Al, like bikes back then were either cross country or they were downhill or they were you know like they, there wasn't so much of an in between genre. Uh, and Sai sort of says that you know he had a load of parts that he wanted on his mountain bike, but none of them really fit the mountain bike, or there wasn't really a frame to fit them on that really worked with what he wanted. So you know, talking grippy, chunky tires, disc brakes, hundred twenty ish mil forks, that sort of thing. There wasn't really a suitable bike, um, so he. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a long story behind it, but basically came up with the sole as a uh, kind of a fairly lightweight but still fairly aggressive steel trail bike that was basically an absolute ton of fun. Um, and yeah, they, he sort of built this over various generations um, over the years, um, and it only stopped being on sale actually a couple of years ago now is when they dropped it, obviously through various iterations, but it started off as a 26-inch, 
Um, and yeah, I, I think it's really basically influenced the whole sort of British steel, kind of hardcore hardtail, but not in a sort of like enduro way. But you know, like you, you, you steel trail hardtail genre of bikes in a roundabout way is what I'm trying to say. Because I mean, that type of bike has a huge following, especially in this country, doesn't it? Yeah. Massive. I mean, Kotick really are like one of those brands, along with the likes of Pace, Orange. You know, there's such heritage almost behind them. And okay, like Kotick are probably younger than those two brands in particular, but they still play a huge part in the, into the fabric of British mountain biking um, uh, and how we as a country almost have, in many respects, developed our own style of bikes, I think. You know, there's, there's very much like a British hardtail. And like we said, with, with the number of these bikes, you know, when you do go on launches, people do ask you what it's like to ride these smaller, more niche UK brands if they're an international brand, because we, we kind of have our own style of doing things. So why do you think that hardtail appealed so much? Well, why do you think those sorts of hardtails appeal so much, particularly in this country? I think it's it's the sort of the do-it-all nature of them. Like, you know, people don't necessarily want like an uptight, sort of rigid, real snappy, difficult to ride, and therefore not particularly fun cross-country bike a lot of the time. But also they might not want to be lugging around a big heavy downhill bike. It, it goes back to the SX Trail. You know, people want a bike that they can ride all day. And okay, like full sus might have its advantages, but people still like that direct connectivity of a hardtail. Um, and I, but I think they still want the capability to go fast and have a lot of fun doing it. And still ride all day. So the more extreme geometry may be put in a different application without the fact yeah. of all the pivots and linkages. And Exactly. I mean, so it was launched at Mountain Mayhem, which is, you know, if we're talking about, you know, British cycling history, that yeah. Mountain Mayhem is a classic, classic race. It's one of the first like, 24-hour races, which was a massive thing in the early 2000s in the UK anyway. And Mountain Mayhem really was like the one to go to. You know, they, they launched it there. Uh, 2003 with a 125 mil fork. Uh, it was made of Reynolds 853. So the top shoe, you know, as sort of Luke sort of pointed out in an email earlier, like the top shoe was made from a, re- a road bike down tube because it was the best they could get. They used the biggest, thickest down tube they could find from Reynolds. It came with a 60 mil stem, came with a, a 69.5 degree head angle, which for back then actually was pretty slack. Um, and it sort of, as I say, evolved from there. Size sort of often said, you know, like a lot of people, he went to Eurobike in 2013 and got a bit of a sucker punch in his stomach because all of a sudden the bike industry had gone 27.5 and they hadn't sort of gone there, but they already sort of felt that maybe they're being left behind a bit. So that's where, you know, it's in 2013 where the geometry changed kind of for the first time because of the fact that up until that point, it didn't really need to. Um, so they moved on to bigger wheels. And then we're talking, you know, generation five, long truck geometry with we're talking about, you know, 480mm reach, super slack head angles, which again ties into what we've been talking about with the Mondraker of super long extreme geometry. And Kotick are one of those brands who really have been at the forefront of that, I feel, in the UK. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, it kind of feels like maybe it sort of reflects the the um, the climate and the terrain of the UK. It's never mm. super hot, never super cold, never massive mountains, never like insane or crazy. It's sort of that middle ground of... You know, mm. this is like the simplicity and the pure joy of mountain biking and that kind of iconic Kotick uh, orange colour with the, you know, like the, the white gap in the middle. It, whenever you say Kotick Soul, I think of that, that yeah. colour, mm. that bike. And it's, I mean, that, you know, the, it's an iconic thing. They, they Apparently, they originally um, ordered a few frames from Taiwan. Um, Brant Richards was involved, apparently, from the start to sort of help Sai get set up. 
Um, and apparently the factory got confused and sent them 100 frames instead of the, the dozen or so or whatever it is they'd ordered. Um, but, they, you know, they painted them um, that orange colour, which is kind of iconic. And that um, the Kotick logo, which you see on every Kotick now, it's that blocked decal in the middle of the down tube. And that's present even on their, on their prototype bike. Um, so, you know, the branding's super consistent all the way through their history. Um, and, and if you look at other bikes that sort of I feel that maybe aren't a direct copy or, but, you know, there's so many bikes in that genre now that over the years have become iconic in their own right. You know, the Stanton Slackline, you've got the Orange Crush. You know, Ragley, for example, have done it um, in the past. Pipe Dream, On One. I mean, On One are another brand, really, who have been so heavily involved in, in mountain biking in the UK with so many interesting bikes. And what's interesting is Brant's involved with that Brandt's and he's involved, involved with yeah. Ragley, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you've got the likes of Bird. So the, 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 there's a lot of brands doing this. But the other, the other point which I wanted to make about Kotick, I guess, and I've blathered on a little bit in a very unstructured way about the bike, I do apologise. But I think one of the really interesting things about Kotick, which they maybe don't get quite so much kudos for, is that they were an internet-only brand from the start. You know, they, they didn't sell in, in shops particularly. You know, they, they focused at the start on selling online. They were one of the first brands to have, you know, an, a web shop for their page. And I think that is still very much the aspect with, with them now. Yeah, they've re and Sai, they're, they're pretty good at being really reactive as well. Mm. Sai's really switched on as an engineer, as you know, not just as a bike brand owner, but as a designer and engineer, he, he's always looking to see how he can improve his bikes and update them at the, mm. you know, as quickly as possible. Um, you know, if it works, he'll stick with it. But equally, if he knows that there's things that he can do better, he'll he'll tweak it. So it's a really exciting brand. Mm. You were chatting to Sai last week. Did you, do, you did a podcast with Downtime, right? With Sai? I did, yeah, last Thursday. Yeah, I think it's out today, in fact. Oh, okay, cool. Hmm. Um, worth a listen, Downtime podcast. It's real good. Yeah. Um, uh, today, today is the 11th of May as well for those people in the future. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't live thank god this isn't it's live it's been out for a while <laughs> can you imagine um, are we not on tv what, what, <laughs> what, 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 what were you and side chatting about on, on that podcast so chris who um who hosts the podcast he wanted to get um he wanted to see what the relationship was like between a bike designer and a bike tester and just mm -hmm. see i don't know fireworks get, yeah, get an insight as to how how that relationship works, you know, from mm -hmm. the point of a bike request coming in for a test through to how, you know, the feedback's dealt with at the other end post-review. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was an interesting chat, you know. I think, mm -hmm. well, I won't go too much into it, but you know what it's like. It's, uh, for the most part, we've got really good relationships with those guys because mm. hopefully we can provide some useful feedback but yeah, yeah. hopefully anyway. i mean it, it, that soul has had you know amazing reviews from from its inception all the way through just because i guess it has always been or was always sort of at the forefront of what was happening with hardtails here in the uk yeah i mean um, guy castavan who obviously used to work with us he absolutely raved about it mm -hmm. has done for years but so did steve warland who mm -hmm. was, you know, one of the first really established testers at MB UK and Bike Radar, who sadly passed away a few years ago. But, it, you know, that's the sort of bike that 
Steve, despite coming from that cross-country background, that's the sort of bike he absolutely loved. It was a bike mm-hmm. that he knew that he could just ride really, really hard all the time. And um, yeah, I think if you look back on, on Bike Radar, you can see a whole host of his reviews from over the years where he's just yeah, sure, yeah. yeah waxed lyrical about it. So yeah, so I guess that's probably why, well, yeah, that's why The Soul, I think, is, is one of those super influential bikes. It's, it really almost defined the genre of both mountain biking in the UK and the bikes to go with it. Um, so yeah. Wicked. Let's move Beautiful. on to our um, our last one. Al. Okay, so uh, my one is uh, is influential for for many different reasons. Firstly, for technological advances or perceived technological advances. Head scratching. Anyway. Read head scratching. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a lot of puzzling, uh, and also for um, incredible endeavours around professionalism, secrecy smoke and mirrors wow now what am i talking about dear listeners i am talking about rally burner (laughs) rally burner no one of those wolf bmx's with the little computer display panel on the stem what was in that box the The intrigue the smoke and mirrors it's david hasselhoff he was in there right (laughs) kit was in there too um no, we're not talking about David Hazard, David, David Castlehoff. <laughs> we're just so excited. Maybe we will be. I don't know. Uh, we're talking about the Honda RN01 G-Cross downhill bike. Now, this first kind of um, came to everybody's attention in, it was kind of 2003, 2004. So it started in Japan in 2003 with Naoki I. Idigawa, I'm really sorry, Noki, um, but I hope I've got your name correct. He rode it in the 2003 season in Japan. And then in 2004, it was unleashed on the World Cup downhill scene under Greg Minar as the headline rider. Now, the Honda RN01 G-Cross downhill bike was something that no one had ever seen before. Firstly, because it was a push bike from Honda, not a motorbike. And secondly, because it had a gearbox on the main frame, it had upside down forks, it had a high single pivot, it was shiny metal, it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful to behold. And not only did it look incredible, there was also an amazing amount of buzz around the bike because of all of this secrecy and the smoke in the mirrors and the what's inside the gearbox question for which plenty of people asked. So I did a little bit of Googling around the bike because obviously I've got some anecdotal stories that I'll get onto in a minute about it. But information is still surprisingly scarce on on the bike, actually, from everything from its geometry to its travel to, you know, all sorts of different things. Um, We can confirm that it had Showa suspension, both front and back. Um, That's about it, really. No, just use your eyes and just look. Right. Uh, no, no, in, in all seriousness, um, we can now unveil um, that inside the gearbox was actually a six-speed, and I counted them, uh, cassette with a derailleur. And that was it. Hmm. And that was what all the fuss was about. I mean, it wasn't what all the fuss was about, but certainly a large amount of it was about what was inside that box. I mean, it's a box with gears in it. It's a gearbox. Exactly. But it was more about the that presence at the race, wasn't it? Because you yeah, must remember completely. back to being there and seeing no one could handle the bikes, could they? No one could touch yeah. the bikes other than the mechanics of the riders. 
the gearboxes were unbolted every night and taken off site. They were always kept with the mechanics. Um, well, they're saying that when me and Luke rode for we when we were racing World Cup stuff, I do remember our mechanic Dave Garland literally lobbing one of the um, Hondas off of the back of a truck in Spain to try and get Luke's bike out because Luke had slept through his start time for qualifying. And, <laughs> and, and, and he slept just... through the start time. I just was resting at the bottom and left it to the last minute to get ready. And then the amount of time the engineers from Honda, the mechanics from Honda, took to put their bikes in the uplift truck. With their blankets and with their blankets. With their blankets. And it was, yeah. Uh, then, yeah, like it took them 10 minutes to load the bike and I missed my start time. Yeah. And Dave, I mean, I've never seen Dave frantically just trying to push these poor guys out of the way and just push this, you know, money can't buy bike off of a truck. Yeah. <laughs> ghost it, just ghost it. Yeah. Don't touch yeah. that. It got put on very nicely. It didn't get taken off so nicely. But uh, but yeah, it was ninety seconds late. Ah, and you, you would have won otherwise. So so yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah. I was feeling good that time. weekend. It was uh, yeah, just go and correct routes and rain. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I've yeah. also got got a story about the about the RN01. Um, it was actually in in Mulfra in Mid Wales, um, at the 2004 UK National. It was on the 30th of May. Of May, if anyone wants to look up those results, being very specific. Now I remember Martin Whiteley, Greg Minard, and Cyril Kurtz, who was a young and up and coming French junior rider. Um, I think he was actually maybe became world champ, junior world champion at one point. Maybe, can't quite remember. Anyway, regardless, they all rocked up at this UK national event, which was before Fort William, so like a pre-Fort William World Cup warm-up. And they had their massive easy up at this race. And and it was, it was a complete smoke and mirrors thing. And I remember seeing poor dejected Cyril Kurtz on the uplift trailer, um, which was a, a, a kind of flatbed trailer on the back of a tractor with the Honda mechanic holding his bike, Cyril unable to talk to anyone else, to be a lad, to be a mate, to, you know, have a bit of banter because he felt the pressure, I guess, from having this massive presence at this massive company. Um, And interestingly, at that race, and thanks again to Roots and Rain, um, Cyril was racing in the junior category, the same as me. Um, I was like a semi-privateery type youth kid back then. Um, Cyril obviously won. I mean, could he not have won riding a Honda RN01 G-Cross downhill bike, for Christ's sake? Um, But I came fourth in that category, so 3.8 seconds back. But Luke, in the expert category at the time, came second. Amazing result there from Luke. And he was two seconds quicker than me. Unfortunately for our senior super technical editor-in-chief, big man, Bob Weaver, he, he did still, finish. I'm still finishing. To still finishing, 285th out of 291. Um, but oh, I, I no. think he might have crashed, Rob. Yeah, so, I, I had. I think I had a crash then. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, um, maybe. I, can't yeah, I was going to say you better have had a crash. <laughs> it's definitely the probably the height of my uh, my racing it's career. Quiet, it's probably a quiet drive home, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most of our drive homes are quite quiet and racist. <laughs> yeah, because you have meatloaf on so loud. Um, <laughs> so the question I think that was always getting banded around when that bike was around was why are Honda doing it? Do you have any insight into that, Al? 
Yeah, I mean, there are, there's definitely rumours, um, and a, a lot of them around those. A lot of the rumours around that question relate to suspension testing for motocross bikes, um, and that seems to be one of the the main reasons that they went out and did this project, um, because it kind of went as quick as it came, right? And mm. You know, for the 2005 season, there was Brendan Fairclough, um, who famously, you know, rode the RN01 alongside Matty Lahainakonin um, and Greg Minar as well. And then the 2006 season, nothing, not a peep. You know, everyone had moved on. I think Greg joined the syndicate in 2006. Um, I can't remember where, where Brendan went after. Was it Iron Horse, maybe? Yeah. So, yeah, it kind of came as quickly as it went. So... Um, you know, I guess maybe Honda got the information they were looking for. I, I don't know. I'd also heard it was like a project for their junior engineers to work on chassis stiffness and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Um, That's cool. So Greg Minna, so on, a, on a, a Fox test camp, Greg was telling me that he went in the early days when they were trying to work out the chassis stiffness, he said he was literally there with a huge team of Honda engineers and they would start with just the frame as it was, you know, on run one. And then as the day went on, the engineers would slowly start to basically just drill and mill bits of the frame away until it was just like a baggy mess or it cracked. Wow. Yeah. That would explain why they had so many of the bikes and why after every run they were basically rebuilding them. And also why they had an easy up that was bigger than all of our houses combined. <laughs> <laughs> it was big yeah especially compared to the van which wasn't that big <laughs> yeah crazy um, and also, also obviously the other thing worth worth mentioning about the honda g-cross team was that it was managed by martin whiteley who might not be an influential mountain bike because he's a human being but he's certainly one of the most influential people in the cycling industry um you know even to this date with massive amount of success behind him and the honda g-cross team is no exception to that What's um what's Martin Whiteley doing at the moment? Just to give our listeners a flavour of that. Isn't he still managing the YT mob? He is. Um, and they're looking to re... I, I saw a, an email the other day come through that they're kind of relaunching the YT mob with new riders, new young talent. <laughs> oh, Tom, are you in it? <laughs> Spoiler <Yeah>. alert. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the YT mob riding your Marin Elroy at World Cup downhill tracks, testing brakes. There we go, exactly that. They really liked his Jesse review, and so, yeah, he, he's he's going to be on the truck. I think they did, actually. I got an email. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the first bike, <laughs> separate thing, first bike of the year I've done. We've had no complaints. Bloody great. Yet. Yet. <laughs> it's on sale. It's all in the past. <laughs> so, before we finish, though, the another another thing about the Honda is that the rumour was that they were any bikes remaining, they were either, well, Greg kept one, and I believe he has it in his shop in South yeah. Africa, but everything else apparently was destroyed, right? But then I'd heard, do you remember Do you remember the race, uh, is it Willingham? Is that how you say it? Willingham in Germany? Uh, the the terribly flat one. track. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with massive jumps in it. So yeah, it was that. twinned with that cycle festival, and that one year, like, some people kind of broke into the pits and robbed like 50 yeah. bikes or something. Yeah. So Tracy Hannah was, I think she was racing somewhere in somewhere in Eastern Europe. And she said she went into the back of a bike shop in the week leading up to it. And there was a Honda 
there without a gearbox, just sat in the back of the shop. Because they surprised me. They had yeah. they had two bikes robbed from them, I think. Hmm. And then there was pictures floating around of Eli Tomac's uh, Eli Tomac, his obviously his dad John Tomac, the legend, mountain bike legend, and Eli being a motorbike motocross supercross legend. He had a Honda sat in his pit, a Honda RN01 sat in his pit when he was racing for Geico Honda. Hmm. That would tie into the Honda bike being used potentially as some sort of development for the motocross? Maybe, maybe. Because I, I think people were, I think people would have been trying to buy the patent and I'm not sure, I'm not sure who ended up with the patent in the end. I'm pretty sure someone bought it, but I don't know who or yeah. when that was and if they've done anything with it, I don't know. But, I mean, this is the thing. We're still talking about it now, right? It was only around mm -hmm. for a few years. Yeah. And I, I guess maybe the, the closest thing to that bike um, that kind of existed a little more in the public eye but was still also massive unobtainium was the Milliard downhill bike mm. that Bernard Kerr rode that also had a gearbox that was also, you know, incredibly technologically advanced with its um, shock that didn't have uh, an air spring. It was pressurized with, what was it, argon gas maybe? Um, um, and it had like an internally rooted chain inside the swing arm. It was a one-sided swing arm. Um, you know, that kind of parallels this bike. I'm not really sure what my point is, but yeah, good work, Milliard. I guess what you're trying to say is there's not many of those bikes. We don't have that sort of phenomena kicking around anymore it's it's maybe less so now i guess there's maybe a touch of it with luke bruni in the carbon box that sits over his shock yeah. potentially yeah. but i mean i know that there there aren't any current gearbox downhill bikes you know mainstream ones there, there was the lahar for a bit there's the zeroed but they they're not it's, it's a you know zero to what a rollhoff hub in the in the in the middle or is it an alfine a shimano alfine hub Alfine, whatever, however you want to say it. I think it, it was a roll-off, wasn't it? I can't remember. Was it? Might be an Alfine. Yeah. Well, didn't it? Yeah. Was the, um, the RN01 a high pivot, though? Well, so I, I've, I've been looking at pictures really hard about this, trying to measure the, the gap between the bottom bracket and the pivot. And yes, it does look like it's a high pivot bike, um, which, you know, would make sense um, for motocross development to maybe see about pivot location. Um it's a single pivot. There's only one pivot, and the shock is mounted directly to the swing arm, which is the same as quite a lot of motocross bikes, although some of them use linkages as well. Um, they were probably investigating unsprung mass as well, which is you know the relationship between the frame's main weight and the swing arm's weight, um, and trying to work out what was happening, what wasn't happening there. Well, they just tried to make a dead fancy orange. Could have done, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or maybe they just wanted to get everyone's knickers in a twist, and it was a nice day out for their junior engineers. And they all just took the piss out of everyone else in the mountain bike industry, quite simply. <laughs> hey, you should be making cars, you clowns. <laughs> Look how easy it is. Well, yeah. I guess, yeah, there's no dispute in the fact that it's, um, it was a talking point and definitely influential, definitely a head scratcher. To this day. I mean, like, you know, I mean, uh, maybe Brendan would have some, have some good insight into into it. I mean, I, I did hear down the grapevine that he found the forks really soft. Yeah. Not that that means a huge amount, but, um, you know, to us right this second, I'm saying, but, you know, maybe Brendan could shed some light on it. I know you, Luke, and Rob, you're, you're good mates with Brendan. Maybe uh, maybe you could hoodwink him into a, 
a future bike radar podcast on his previous racing career could be quite interesting he might just want to talk about his current run though that's it you know and and his his house rampage oh god yeah <laughs> although that's over isn't it he's building his new house so i guess that's all done and dusted yeah he's made his his, his foundations are in according to instagram as of this morning anyway there you go Okay. Well, we don't need to invite him on the podcast anymore because we've got <laughs> Brendan's latest update. So cheers for that spoiler, Tom. <laughs> we'll keep you up to date next, next episode. So basically, if anyone's just, looking for any new information, just go on Instagram or speak to Tom. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> if he's not on the YT mob. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Tom, that is, not Brendan. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, I think uh, it's probably a good time to wrap it all up if anyone's still listening. I think so. <laughs> but yeah, thank you ever so much. Um, that was, yeah, what we think are some of the most influential bikes of the last millennium. Along with a load of other stuff. <laughs> Along with a load of other absolute guff. And some great race results from you two. Let's say. <laughs> and again, Jenna. <laughs> um, if you have actually managed to enjoy this podcast, that's great. Um, do subscribe to it um, and uh, share it with everyone else who you think might be mad enough to have um, listened through an hour and 10 minutes of us um, yakking on uh, like that. But yeah, thank you very much for listening. Um, Thanks, Rob, Al, and Luke. Cheers, Tom. Um, we'll have another episode next Monday. Probably a little bit more concise. <laughs> we'll see. Who knows? <laughs> maybe not. I doubt it. Or maybe not. <laughs> we'll find out. All right. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.